0: In the midst of hard and even dangerous situations, uh, and uh, before I get into that, I do want to mention um, I know most of you would have gotten a letter from the elders and a letter from Pastor Jim this week uh, talking about his transition to go be senior pastor out in Washington state. It's going to be a hard life he's going to he's going to be living on the beach looking at the mountains um, you know, they wanted to go someplace that, you know, some people are, are just greedy like that. They can't be satisfied with just the beach or the mountains. They have to have both. And so Jim's going to live on Whidbey Island uh, out there and pastor Whidbey Evangelical Free Church uh, and uh, live in a house on the beach and looking at the Olympic Mountains. So um, it's going to be a tough life suffering for Jesus. Um, <laughs> But uh, certainly we love them, and we um, uh, all now have a place to go and stay. <laughs> um, <so laughs> uh, but uh, we are excited for them. We're also sad that he's going to be leaving us, but we're, we're excited for them. Um, really feel like this has been a direction that, uh, that God has been leading Jim in, and I know they're excited for that, but also sad to be leaving us. Uh, but I want to assure you also um, uh, on behalf of the elders that uh, we will be making some decisions here as a church about uh, what to do uh, on our side of things after Jim makes his transition uh, and what that position might look like, uh, because if you look around, we are growing as a church, and um, certainly I'm not capable of of uh, meeting all the pastoral care needs that are here. So um, so we um, we are going to be replacing him at some point with someone. I uh, don't quite exactly know what shape that will take yet, but uh, do be in prayer for, for them and for us as a church body uh, and in terms of how we make those decisions together. So we'll have more to share on that, I'm sure. And if you have any questions, please, please don't just have questions and wonder what's going on. Talk to me, talk to Jim, talk to Darcy. Uh, talk to one of our elders, and uh, we'd be happy to talk with you at length about whatever uh, is going on uh, with that transition. Um, and uh, we'll also have a, a farewell celebration for them, I'm sure, uh, coming up, and we'll we'll get that information out to you. Uh, but Jen's been a very faithful guy. He will continue to be a faithful, godly man uh, in a new role. Um, and we will continue to love them and, and uh, be friends with them for years to come, I'm sure. So um, to go back to Genesis for a minute, I, I want to just say this. I doubt that many of us will ever face martyrdom. At least I hope that that's the case. Uh, unless some of you young people grow up and decide I'm going to give every everything, I'm going to give my last full measure in a Muslim country, and if they put me to death, so be it. Uh, and I hope that we raise some folks in this church who are courageous enough to do that, but most of us will probably never face martyrdom. We won't have, by living in America anyway, most of us, that sort of last-ditch, do-or-die, will-he-stand-for-Jesus-or-will-he-not moment. Probably. What we will probably have is more Like a succession of moments on a journey as we travel along the road following Jesus, we won't have immediate death in a blaze of glory, but we'll face what I would call slow martyrdom. Maybe you walk down a road that includes the inexorable march of cancer or Alzheimer's. Or you'll have your journey marked by children who walk or even run away from the faith. Or a spouse who you love deeply that abandons you. Or an accident that leaves you or someone that you love paralyzed. And you may experience many other, in addition to these, things that Satan will use in your life and in mine to try to fill us with fear and fill us with doubt rather than faith and trust and obedience to God. And because at the end of the day, I think at the end of the day, as you look at the spiritual life, the fundamental question is this. The fundamental question of all of the Christian life is this, and it's one that God is asking us. Will you trust me in this and with this? Will you trust me in this and with this? Will you trust me as you go through these circumstances? And will you put this set of circumstances, whatever it is, in my hands and not demand it back? And let me be sovereign and be God and you not be worried. And in a panic, wondering whether I can handle it. Are you going to trust me with this and in this? Are you going to trust me? And this is a hard question because the harder the set of circumstances are, the more we want to answer that question, no, I do not trust you, and I'm not going to trust you in it, and I'm certainly not going to trust you with it. But what I want us to see is that the answer to that question needs to be yes. Yes. Yes, Lord, no matter what happens, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust you as I go through this, and I'm going to trust you with this set of circumstances to be present with me, to go through it with me, to deliver it, to deliver me from it, if that is your plan, or deliver me through it, if that is your plan. But I'm going to trust you either way. And we'll look at Isaac and his circumstances and, uh, and see how he both trusts And does not trust God and what we might learn from that. So, uh, if you have your Bible, uh, Genesis chapter 26, we're going to look first at verses 1 to 5. This is what the Lord says in His Word. Now, there was a famine in the land besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. "'Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. "'Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. "'For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands, "'and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. "'I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, "'and I will give to your offspring all these lands, "'and in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, "'because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, "'my commandments, my statutes.'" and my laws. Now, let me give you a a little bit of background here. Isaac was 60 years old when his boys, Jacob and Esau, were born, and he was 75 when Abraham died, which means that at the time of the great red stew swindle that we looked at last week, uh, the boys would have been about 15. So they're there you know Jacob is getting after it uh he's he's not going to wait around on his birthright 15 years old he swindles his brother out of his birthright for a bowl of soup and what you see at this point in 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 their lives is that there is a, a yet a third generation that's been born the boys would have been old enough to know Abraham and to have an have an understanding of the promises that have been given to him that God has promised to give him this land that he's promised to bless all the nations through him and to bless him personally and his family and that he's going to um be a great nation and have many descendants but so far in the story, we've not seen that promise explicitly given to Isaac. And Isaac is Isaac is there and his boys are there, and the third generation has been born, but Abraham is dead, and so you naturally wonder well, God said that Isaac was going to be a child of promise, but God has not told Isaac that. And there's a there's a famine that comes. And this is not an uncommon thing, uh, particularly in those days. Uh, There was not irrigation systems. You know, we didn't have, you know, pivot irrigators that you could send out to the field and pump it out of the ground. Uh, You you didn't have, you know, canals or this kind of thing that you you could just use. And in Canaan, the land where they lived, what you're dependent on is the rainfall that comes in off of the Mediterranean Sea and... As you get rain, and you typically get it in the spring and in the fall, as you get rainfall, you're able to grow crops. But it's still a dry climate. So you can grow olives, and you can grow grapes, and you can grow uh, low-moisture grain crops like wheat and so forth. But anything that's water-intensive is not going to make it. But you're dependent on that rain coming. And if the rain doesn't come, guess what? The crops don't grow, and pretty soon after you run out of whatever you harvested last year, you're hungry, and there's a famine. But the nation of Egypt, because it, was, it, it did not rely for its agriculture on rain, it relied on the flooding of the Nile River. And every year, you know, the, the snow in the mountains would melt and you would have this giant roaring flood that would spread out all the way across the, across the Nile flood plain and you'd have this silt and water that would wash out over this broad plain and then you would grow your crops all the way down that river. And it happened every year and very rarely would that flood fail to happen. And so Egypt became one of the most powerful nations of the world because there was always food. And you could always depend on the Nile. And so what you naturally wanted to do if you lived in Canaan was, i got to get down to Egypt and get some snacks because we're going to be hungry here in a few months. Food's going to run out. And God says, Isaac, don't you go down to Egypt. Don't you go down to Egypt. And here's why. You need to stay in this land because it's to this land that I'm going to call you. And and in this land that I'm going to bless you. And in fact, I'm going to give you all the promises that I gave to Abraham. Only instead of go to the land that I will show you, it's stay in the land that I have shown you. Right? Right? And he says, and, he, and and we're meant to remember the language of the promises of God to Abraham because he repeats them in very similar language here. He says, I will bless you and I will give you and your offspring all these lands and I will establish the oath I swore to Abraham, that covenant, and I will multiply your offspring like the stars. Remember, that's one of the things that God said to Abraham, that Go out and look, at the, look up in the sky and count all the stars. And if you can count them all, by the time you get done counting, that's how many descendants you will have. Now, obviously, that's not probably literally true. There are literally billions of stars, and there have not been billions of Jews. Uh, but God is making a, an abundant promise. He's saying, Look, you're going to have not just a few kids, you're going to have a bunch. And he reiterates the same promise to Isaac. And he says, and in your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And what God is doing here is making explicit what's been merely implied. He had told Abraham, this is the child. This is the one through whom the covenant is going to continue and through whom the blessing is going to come. But now Isaac is explicitly given himself personally, the same covenant with God that Abraham had, and in the same terms, only with the addition of, as I swore to Abraham, and because of Abraham. And what we're meant to see here is that God is a God who keeps his promises. You know, whenever somebody makes you a promise, the issue on that promise is always what? whether they're going to fulfill and so you know this week i got a new driveway poured at my house to much rejoicing (laughs) i'm serious mine was pathetic it was it did like this across the front of it you know it was it was nasty we finally got all that nasty old asphalt and busted up concrete in front of the garage ripped out and so forth and i promised this week to pay the bank a fair amount of money for the privilege of having new concrete to drive on. What's the issue? Is the promise good? What well, it had better be, or they'll take my house. Uh, <laughs> but but uh, is the promise good? What's the character of the person making the promise? And what God is saying is, my character is impeccable. You can take my promises to the bank. Because just like I was faithful to keep my promises to Abraham, and you lived through that, you know that I kept my promises to Abraham. In fact, you your existence is the result of my promises to Abraham. Even though he was a hundred-year-old man when you were born, I kept my promises to Abraham. And I'm going to keep my promises to you. And so... Isaac is encouraged, you need to trust me and you need to obey me, just like Abraham did. You need to trust me, and you need to obey me. Well, what do you think? Does Isaac trust and obey God? Let's find out. We'll read on here, verse 6 to 22. So Isaac settled in Gerar. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, she is my sister, For he feared to say, my wife, thinking, lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. And when he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of the window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. And so Abimelech called Isaac and said, behold, she is your wife. How then could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, because I thought, lest I die because of her. Abimelech said what is this you have done to us one of the people might easily have lain with your wife and you would have brought guilt upon us So abimelech warned all the people saying whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death And isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold The lord blessed him and the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants, so that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham his father which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham, and he gave them the names his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, This water is ours. So he called the name of the well Asak, because they contended with him. And they dug another well, and they quarreled over that also. So he called its name Sitna, and he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called his name Rehoboth, saying, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. Well, what did we see? What was the answer to that question? Did he trust and obey God? Well, I think you can safely say that he did obey to a certain extent. He did stay in the land like God had told him. But did he really trust God to be with him? God had promised, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be with you. Did he believe what God said, that he was going to be with him? No, I don't think so. Because he moves toward the Philistine cities. The Philistine cities are out on the coastal plain, uh, Israel has a, a flat coastal plain, and then it moves up to the central highlands in the middle that kind of run down like a spine down the back of the, uh, and down the, back of the country. And he moves out where, to the coastline to where you can plant crops and where there are more rainfalls. He moves out there, and out of fear, when he moves there, he borrows a trick from his dad. And he tells everybody that Rebecca is his sister instead of his wife, which is what she is. And it's, the reason for that is that according to cultural custom, you could kill a foreigner for his wife if you really liked her. Uh, but you had to negotiate with her brother. Now, that's, don't ask me to explain why that is. People in their sin are wonderfully creative at coming up with sinful ways to get what they want. Uh, But in any case, he says, well, as her brother, they'll have to negotiate with me. They can't kill me. And so I'm going to pose as her brother. Rebecca is a beautiful woman, so the fear is justified. But God has just promised, I'll be with you and I'll protect you. And all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through you, which kind of indicates that you're going to be around. So you don't need to worry. But rather... Than act out of faith, he acts out of fear, and so he lies. And like a liar, he eventually gets found out. And what happens is, is that after they've been there a while, Abimelech, the Philistine king, and by the way, Abimelech is probably not his name. It looks like a name in the English text. But in Hebrew, what Abimelech means is, My father is king. So it's probably a title, like Pharaoh. You know, we don't call him... Pharaoh Ramses and Pharaoh Tutmosis and Pharaoh whoever, you know, Tutankhamen and whatever. It's just in the Bible, it's just Pharaoh because he's just some random Gentile dude and his name is not that important. And so they call him Abimelech. My father is king. It's a title like crown prince or prince of Wales or something like that. The local Philistine king. And it says the text says that they are laughing together. What's happening here, that's euphemistic. There's a, um, they're enjoying each other in a marital way and laughing as they're doing so. And uh, Abimelech sees this and realizes um, this guy is either from Kentucky or that's his wife. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And Isaac gets confronted And he is ashamed and is a massive loss of face because now you're outed as a liar. You've been lying to everybody for months. And it's pretty clear that this is really your wife. And what would have happened if we had acted on the assumption that she was your sister? And this being Philistine culture, they're not necessarily hip to the niceties of get married first. He says, one of us might have been with your wife, and then we would have had guilt from God brought down on us for adultery because she is married to you. What's wrong with you? And there's, again, a massive loss of faith. Um, But what's interesting is that Abimelech, once he finds out who this lady really is, issues a decree that ensures Isaac and Rebekah's protection. So, again, should Isaac have been worried? No, he should have trusted God because even this pagan king is ultimately ruled by God, and so Isaac had no reason to let his fears triumph over his faith. And in fact, God makes his blessing and his protection plain in what happens next. Isaac becomes a farmer, and the harvest is unbelievable. Particularly for a day, you know, prior to round up ready corn and all the rest of that, right? He plants, he plants one bushel and he gets back a hundred. And for every bushel he plants, he gets back a hundred. And this is in a drought year. So, I mean, the harvest is just rolling in. And guess what? When everybody else has got drought and you've got crops, what do you become? Rich. (laughs) Every farmer is praying for that don't let it rain anywhere else but rain on my field, (laughs) right? Um, They're hoping that the the futures market is going to go way crazy because everybody else has got drought, but I've got crops. And he gets this bumper harvest and he becomes wealthy beyond imagination. And so the Philistines get jealous and run him out of town. And Isaac starts Redigging the wells that his father Abraham dug, and uh, because the Philistines had filled them all in. After Abraham died, they said, "Well, our treaty was with that guy, so we had to had to keep them open while he was alive. But now that he's dead, we're going to fill those in." And what's remarkable is, is that as he's getting chased from place to place, you know, he names one of the wells Asak, which means contention or argument. And the next one, Sitna, which means hatred. And he keeps having to move. But every place he digs, there's water. Every place. Oh, we went out and we dug again and there's water. Every place he digs, they're hitting water. And what winds up happening is is that even the Philistines eventually give up chasing him. And he finds the last well and he calls that Rehoboth or Rehoboth. Uh, which means broad places or room. He says, finally, God has made room for us. And and what's crazy about this is that they see him become so powerful, they become afraid of him because God's blessing is on his life. Did Isaac need to be afraid? No, because now he's got the Philistines afraid of him. He's going to suck up all the water. Have you seen the kind of herds he's got? We need to take some water while we can get it. Story goes on. Let's read on here. Verses 23 to 35. From there he went up to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. And this is key. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. And when Abimelech went to him from Gerar with Ahuza, his advisor, and Phicol, the commander of his army, Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? They said, we see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us. And let us make a covenant with you that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you and i not and have done to you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace for you are now blessed of the Lord. So we made them a feast and they ate and drank. And in the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths and Isaac sent them on their way and they departed from him in peace. That same day, Isaac's servants came and told him about the well they had dug and said to him, We have found water. And he called it Sheba, and therefore the name of this city is Beersheba to this day. And when, Isaac, when Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Biri the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basamath, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. Now, what you see in this section of Scripture here is there are two covenants that get made, one with God and one with Abimelech, the Philistine king. And the first one is much more significant because, again, the Lord appears and he reconfirms the promises that he had made before. And notice what he says. I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you. This is God's grace to Isaac. It's God reminding him of some things. He's saying, essentially, and if I might paraphrase what God is God's message in those words is: "Is this, even though you're a liar, just like your father Abraham, even though." You're a liar, just like your father Abraham. I'm the same God who showed himself faithful to your father Abraham, and I will show myself faithful to you too. It's a reminder that our sins don't invalidate God's promises. Because was Isaac in sin when the whole business with Rebecca? Yes. was he a fool for putting the promises and blessing of God at risk? in what he did? Absolutely. But God is saying, your sinfulness is not so great that it outstrips my grace and my covenant with you. And so just like I announced my covenant before you went and got off on some stupidity, I'm going to announce it to you again to remind you that my covenant with you still stands because it's not based on you, but based on me. That's grace. And in response to God's grace, Isaac does the right thing. He builds an altar and he worships God. By the way, still the right thing. When you mess up, the right thing to do is to confess and worship God. Amen? Still the right thing. Just like it was the right thing in... In Isaac's day, it's right for us as well, and he stays there at Beersheba a long time, and his servants redig the well that his father Abraham had dug there. Beersheba, if you're familiar with your geography of the land, uh, Beersheba is the southernmost point down here at the bottom of the promised land. Uh, when you later when the tri- when the tribes of Israel are established in the land, they talk about the land from Dan, northernmost point. To Beersheba, southernmost point. He's at the southernmost point of the land. And it's, the, it's a significant place where he's living. It's the place where Isaac himself was born. It's the place where he was weaned. It's the place where Abraham made his covenant with an earlier Philistine king, also named Abimelech, who was king of Gerar. And it's to that place that Abimelech's namesake comes to bring covenant uh, with Isaac. And we see that Isaac is growing rich and powerful just like Abraham did. And instead of Isaac being the one who's afraid, it's Abimelech who's afraid. He comes out from town a long way and says, you know, there's this guy down in the southern part of the land here who's rich and powerful and got lots of servants and armed men attached to his household. Um, We need to have a treaty with that guy. Because who knows what happens if he gets any more rich and powerful than he is. We could be run out. And so he comes and he makes a covenant with Isaac. And they have a feast. And he says, and look at how you can see what's happened. In the language that Abimelech uses, he says, now remember, we were at peace and we didn't harm you and we didn't do anything but good for you. Remember? I mean that's the idea he's trying to ingratiate himself with this with this man isaac and life for the most part is really good and it's good except for one little detail and it's this is that isaac is i mean esau rather is starting to reveal himself to be a godless person you got the first hint of that in his treatment of the birthright the right to be the covenant child son of promise, through whom the covenant would continue. He sells it, as we saw last week, for a bowl of soup to his brother Jacob. But that attitude toward the things of God continues because what does he do? He marries not just one pagan woman, but a pair of them, two Hittites. Hittites are among the tribes that are living in the land of Canaan that are later referred to as the Canaanites. They're the pagan god, idol-worshipping people of the land. And Esau says, you know what? i, I got to get me not just one of these gals, but two of them. And his heart clearly is not devoted to the things of God. And just as godly parents everywhere are grieved when their child marries an ungodly person, Isaac and Rebecca are deeply, deeply grieved by these two ladies. It, they are galling to their soul. And it's also a bit of foreshadowing in the story because uh, we're going to look at Jacob's uh, next next week, um, and we're going to uh, turn start to turn the story toward him and what happens with him. He's also going to wind up married to two women, by the way. Uh, through a different set of circumstances, and that's going to be hell on earth as well. Um, but in any case, you're so, you're meant to see that this guy is not a godly person, and he is not making God honoring choices. And it is, like I say, galling to his parents for the rest of their days. These two pagan women that he is married. Uh, I want to wrap up there, uh, but I want to wrap up with a couple of questions. Number one, and you can write these down if you want, or just think about them as you go through your day. First one is this. Do you both obey God and trust him? Do you both obey God and trust him? don't know the answer to that question, let me ask you this. Uh, Do you obey God in big areas, but in seemingly smaller ones decide to go with what seems like a good idea to you? Maybe you go to church, you place your faith in Jesus Christ, but you don't trust God really with your finances. Or maybe you give a lot to the church and you have a real Christian faith, but you've decided not to trust God to give you a committed Christian spouse so you settle for a non-Christian spouse who seems spiritual. Well, they go to church with me. They're not a believer. Because you were unwilling to trust God to provide you with what he has commanded you. Or maybe you are a young person or maybe you're even an older person who has decided to compromise your purity for the sake of a relationship with another person because you don't trust God to bless your life apart from giving in to what everybody else seems to be doing. Whatever the case, whatever the circumstances, the issue is not just do you obey God, but do you trust him? do you trust him that you don't have to work it out on your own that if you do what he has commanded you to do that his blessing will follow and that he is fully trustworthy and that obedience and trust are worth it whatever it costs because God's blessing follows as you as the old kindergarten you know sunday school song says trust and obey There's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to what? Trust and obey, okay? You both obey and trust God. Here's a related question. Do you live your life out of faith or out of fear? Do you spend more of your life and your mental energy worrying about what might happen or trusting God for what he has promised will happen as you obey him? Do you spend a lot of energy going, well, what if this happens? Well, what if this happens? Well, what if this happens? You know what? If that happens, God will still be there. And he will still be with you. We. What's the last thing that Jesus told us? Matthew chapter 28, verse 20. Do you remember? He said, behold. In other words, pay attention. Okay? Joe, you too. Pay attention. All right? Pay attention. Behold, I will be with you, and it literally reads in the Greek text this way. Every day, even the day I get diagnosed, yes. Even the day I get in an accident, yes. Even the day my child walks away from Jesus, yes. Even on the day that my spouse abandons me, yes. Even on the day that the stock market crashes and my finances get sucked into a vortex, Yes, even then, every single cotton-picking day of your life, I will be with you, even on the day of your death. Because that's promotion day, when you go into my presence. I will be with you every day. And it says, "Into the age of the age, in other words, on into eternity, forever and ever and ever, every day. I will be with you. So do you live your life by faith or by fear? Do you To walk by faith is to trust God with the future, going boldly in obedience and trust into the, the pathway that he has set for you. And to live by fear is to live paralyzed by the future, refusing to take risks because something bad might happen. But here's the thing. God calls us to trust and obey Him and to walk by faith. And so when a problem hits, the question is not whether or not this is a big problem. The question is whether or not I have a big God. Because here's what I found out. If you have a big God, you have small problems. If you have big problems, it's because you have a small God. Okay? But here's the reality. We worship the God who flung the universe in all of its vastness into existence by his word. Do you realize that the nearest star outside of our solar system is 4.3 light years away? In other words, if you could travel, and I can't, I'll assure you, 186,000 miles per second every second... It would take you 4.3 years to get there. And that's the nearest one outside of our solar system. And that there are literally billions of stars and billions of galaxies, some of which are so big that they would encompass 25,000 of our sun. The God who said, let there be and there was hung those things there not with great exertions of effort, but just simply by saying, I'd like there to be stars. And there are stars. Millions of years distant from us. I don't know how that happens. But here's what I do know for sure, that the God who is able to do that is big. Amen? So whatever happens to me, is comparatively small. Amen. So when you encounter an issue as you're going through life, the question is, how big is God? Is he big enough to handle this? My suspicion is that whatever it is, the issue the answer is, yes, he's big enough. And he's powerful enough. And guess what? He not only is big enough and powerful enough, but he also loves you enough to do something about it. Because a God who is willing to come down from his heavenly dwellings to live on earth as a creature made out of dirt and to die on a cross at the hands of those same creatures so that they could be in relationship with him is a God who loves you enough to deal with your stuff and mine. Amen? Has he shown himself faithful in the past? Amen. He has. Will he show himself faithful in the future? Yes, he will. So you don't need to be afraid. So take these verses where it says, I am the God of Abraham. Therefore, fear not. God who was faithful to Abraham, was faithful to Isaac, was faithful to Jacob, was faithful to all the saints of the Old Testament, was faithful to the apostles, will also be faithful to you. Brothers and sisters, amen? Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God of steadfast love and faithfulness, that you love us, that you have bought us with the blood of your Son, that you have promised us through his resurrection that we also likewise will be raised. You have given us a far better covenant than you gave to Isaac, Jacob, and Abraham, You have given us the new covenant sealed in the blood of Jesus. And Father, we are so impressed by you. At least as we sit here this morning, I pray that that would continue as we leave. That when we see our problems, we would see a great big God and a little bitty problem instead of a great big problem and a little bitty God. Father, we pray we would trust you that we would walk by faith and not by fear. And that your past faithfulness would assure us of your future faithfulness to us. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.